morning, church. Great to see you. Finally, nice to get some summer, huh? Summer weather, so we're not wading through, through ponds and puddles. Great to see you. Thanks for bringing your Bibles with you this morning. If you have them, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 22. As you're turning there, we're beginning a series uh, today, this weekend, that will carry us on until Jesus comes. It is a series on revival. Every person who is a devoted follower of Jesus needs seasons of renewal and revival. All of us do. From time to time, we just need to be uh, revived, restored, refreshed. Not only that, but churches need renewal from time to time. And how many of you would agree with me that culture needs renewal and revival, needs a move of God? And so we're going to be talking about that in the next several weeks, and of course it'll be in the context of all that we're doing with new services and, and uh, helping include more people. So thanks for your attention to that and your prayerful devotion to what God may be saying to you and to us. Genesis 22, we're going to use as our text today this uh, beautiful story of Abraham and his obedience when God calls him to, to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, and it is a very poignant, very emotional, very powerful story of faith, and may we learn from it today as our faith expands as well. Genesis 22, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. As you're able, would you please stand to hear these important words? I'm going to read verses 1 to 8, then 15 to 18. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke, said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now we know this story that Abraham took him to the top of Mount Moriah, He bound his son Isaac, placed him on top of this pile of wood, and laid the knife to his neck before God stayed his hand and provided a lamb in the thicket. And the story then turns and pivots on that moment. We pick it up at verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And we got inspired today through this important word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Hey, how many of you like Dr. Seuss? It's kind of an acquired taste. You like Dr. Seuss? Lots of people do. Some folks uh, don't get him. (laughs) 
Dr. Seuss has many uh, wonderful stories that are imaginative and creative and, and remind children and everyone else about the potential that we all have. One of those stories is called On Beyond Zebra. You remember that one? On Beyond Zebra. And it prompts us perhaps to imagine beyond the limits that we might naturally or normally imagine. Let's think today in terms of our faith. Isn't it true that we all put limits on the way we exercise our faith, live out our faith? I mean, there, there are, there are the, the expectations that are placed upon us from others. Now, you don't want to go out that far. You don't want to expand your belief in what God can do quite that far. I mean, that's not, yeah, that's not realistic. That's, that's a bit naive. That's a little bit too much. And so culture and, and even, even other members of the body of Christ, the people of faith, they, they say, well, you bring that back in a little bit. You know, you just, you're just reaching out too far. And then there are, there are self-imposed limits that we make because as we live our lives, we experience God at certain levels, and over time, then we just imagine, well, this is, this is where God operates in my life, in this realm, this region right here, and not much more than that. And so we develop self-imposed boundaries around our faith. Dr. Seuss maybe will help us. Most people confine the English alphabet to 26 letters with the Z at the end, of course, inevitably standing for zebra, but not the person who was teaching Conrad Odell to spell. Said Conrad Cornelius O'Donnell Odell, my very young friend who is learning to spell, the A is for ape and the B is for bear, the C is for camel, the H is for hare. The M is for mouse, and the R is for rat. I know all the 26 letters like that. And I said, you can stop if you want with the Z, because most people stop with the Z, but not me. Isn't that good? The teacher then goes on to introduce little Conrad to a whole new world that he'd never imagined before. He introduces letters like Glick and Snee and Fanad and the characters such as Sneedles and Nutches and Flu Boober Bab Boober Bubs. Been practicing that. <laughs> what happens though when we go beyond the Z, beyond zebra, either by our own choice or as a result of the circumstances we face in life? Going on beyond zebra can mean maybe discovering new insights or new people or new ideas, or it may lead us out of our comfort zone, you know, that zone where we're okay, out of which we're not okay, maybe out of the comfort zone. Maybe it would expose us to resources that we didn't realize were available unless we expand our faith. Maybe we might find ourselves walking in new dimensions, new levels of our own faith journey, if we just imagine something beyond the normal routine. I want to talk about faith today and boundless faith. There are three points that are in your outline. The first is this, and that is living by faith. You'll want to write down living by faith. Abraham is our model today for faith. He was challenged by God more than once to go on beyond the Z, beyond the boundaries, beyond the normal limits, beyond the comfortable boundaries, and live by faith. You'll remember that he was called by God to leave his homeland and travel hundreds of miles across the desert. He was told that he and his aged wife, Sarah, were to have a child to fulfill the promise of the Lord. 
you'll remember that when that word came through the angel of God, Sarah laughed. But Abraham actually trusted. And Isaac, whose name means laughter, was born. In Hebrews chapter 11, this marvelous chapter in the New Testament that unpacks uh, a number of the names and stories of people who walked by faith and trusted God with our lives, expanded the borders of faith in their own lives. This classic chapter in the Bible on the subject of faith. In verse 8 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Isn't that just the most interesting? Isn't that the greatest phrase? He obeyed and went even though he didn't know where he was going. I just think that's a strong indication of a man walking by faith. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. This is a man who, is a, who, who has a God-sized faith, a God-centered worldview, a God-sized ethic. Verses 17 and 19, Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He, was, uh, he had received the promise, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So the writer of Hebrews reminds us that Abraham actually took Isaac to the altar of sacrifice and was willing to put to death in obedience to God's command to him the son of promise and believed in his heart that even though the boy may, may die that almighty God was great enough to raise him from the dead and so what God teaches us through this is that the faith of Abraham that gets way out beyond the margins way way out there to the extremes and obedience to God's call releases great power and great influence. Living by faith. Here's a second thought. It's on your outline. It's that's the test of faith. Write down the word test. <laughs> the test of faith. Abraham has been taught. He has been tested. And he has failed. Now listen to me. This is the pattern that all of us can recognize if we'll just stop and think about it. God teaches us. He instructs us. He informs us. This is the pattern. God teaches us. He'll give us a life lesson. He'll walk us through that lesson. And then comes the examination. The teaching followed by the test. And then if we're honest in the evaluation of our own lives, we'll re realize that God gave me a lesson. Then he tested me on the subject of that lesson, and I failed. Taught, tested, failed. Taught, tested, failed. Taught, tested, and failed again. And when we study the life of Abraham, we discover that this is his pattern. That Abraham had many tests of faith. Many lessons, then the test, the examination, and then the failure. He oftentimes fails. But here's the application point that we can make. Past failures, watch this now. Past failures are indicative of absolutely nothing in our lives, future, unless we fail to learn the lesson. So just because you have failed and I have failed in some test of faith at some point in our past doesn't mean we're going to fail the next time. Because if we are wise, we will learn the lesson. 
of the test. A success and an overcomer in life is actually a person who has failed a few times, learned from those mistakes, and is better and stronger as a result. See, the, the only way that you can become a failure in life is if you fail to learn from the lessons that God provides for you. Ultimately, Abraham has learned some important lessons. And by this time in his life, he is old. He's over 100 years old. He's enjoying the son of promise, this Isaac, this wonderful blessing that God has provided for he and his wife, Sarah. This boy is the apple of their eye. He is precious to them. He is life itself. They are happy. They are content. They are in retirement. They are, they are, they are sassy. They're thrilled. They couldn't be happier, more fulfilled. Everything is perfect. And the Lord shows up to Abraham one day and he says, Abraham, how you doing? Abraham said, oh, we're doing so great. So wonderful. Thank you so much. Abraham, I was just wondering, do you have enough? And Abraham said, oh, yes. The livestock? Oh, Abraham said, the, yeah, sheep, goats, cattle. We've, we are so blessed. Thank you so much. And Sarah, how Sarah? Oh, Sarah could not be, she couldn't be better. She's so happy. Every, this is the fulfillment of her lifelong dream, to have a son. And here she is raising this boy. He, he is so precious to her. She is so happy. Happy, happy, happy. And then God says to Abraham, uh, I have something I need you to do. What's that, Lord? You, 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 do, you do know that I, I got tea time and uh, I got lunch with buddies and then we got to take little Isaac to soccer this afternoon. Uh, what was your question? God says, I, I want you to take your son, Isaac, I want you to take him up on Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him to me on a burnt offering. God says, Abraham, I'm about to turn your world inside out. And here's what God is saying. He's asking Abraham essentially this question. I need to know, Abraham, after all the lessons, all the tests, all the exams in your life, some you've passed, some you've failed, but you've grown and you've learned, and now you've come to this point in your life, I need to know one thing from you. Will you obey me? Will you do what I say? Let me remind you, friends, that when God leads you to the point of a test like this, he will not deceive you into thinking that the test isn't as bad as it is. He says to him in verse 2 of Genesis 22, he said, Look, that son of yours, the one you love, the son of promise, the apple of your eye, the one precious to you, that one. See, God will not pretty it up for us. God wants obedient servants who will obey him with eyes wide open. That no matter what the consequences may be, God is looking for men and women who will obey him. I announced uh, the theme for this, uh, this next several weeks, revival. Some of you got excited because, you, oh boy, revival, this is great. Well, yeah, we need revival. Yeah, I like revival. Yeah, and immediately you thought of sensing the presence of God and feeling his touch and maybe some tears that go with that and maybe that's part of it too but let me tell you 
The key to revival in your life and my life and our lives and anyone's life in history, the key to experiencing the renewal touch of God is a posture of obedience. There's nothing new. That's the requirement. That's the condition for revival. You know, Mary Poppins taught us a song. She said, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Here's the problem. Almighty God is not Mary Poppins. He gives it to us straight. And he reminds us of the cost. The notion that God will never lead you into anything that will be painful or challenging or difficult or troublesome is utter foolishness. And people who believe that or teach that, I wonder what Bible they're reading. I just wonder. In verse 3, I don't know about you, but from Genesis 22, this challenges my faith and obedience. It says, in the middle of the night, he receives the vision, and the next morning, he obeys. I mean, that's prompt obedience, isn't it? And the stakes are so high. And what we learn from this is that the friend of God, the fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, is not recalcitrant in obedience. We are not obstinate we are not unresponsive we are not uncooperative with God we say yes and we know what he has said to us and so we do as we are told when we are told exactly as we are told that's what brings forth the power releases the energy and presence of God verses 4 and 8 we find the whole character and essence of sacrificial faith is in these verses you can learn authentic worship from the Bible you can learn how to worship God authentically from Acts chapter 2 which is the day of Pentecost, and people are, you know, Pentecostal. Spills out, out of the building, into the street, Pentecostal, nine o'clock in the morning. Folks thought they were drunk. You can learn how to worship from Acts chapter 2, and I want to submit to you, you can learn how to worship from Genesis chapter 22. We can learn it here. We find that Abraham had faith to believe God, and that, and that, Even if the boy were slain, God would resurrect him from the dead. Abraham believed God would faithfully and capably, beyond his ability to understand the event, see him through. Has God ever asked you to do something that you didn't understand? Why would you ask me to do that, God? What kind of a crazy notion is that? That that can't be from you. That's not right. Lord, why would you ask me to do that? That's not, that's not part of my plan. That wasn't, that wasn't the way I perceived it, conceived it. Abraham heard something from God that didn't make any sense, and yet he obeyed. The story is told that near the end of the 12th century, there was a young man whose father was a cloth merchant, very wealthy. The young man loved to ride up and down the road on his fine steed, and he loved the horse almost as much as he loved a good party. He liked wine and women and song. If he lived in Muncie or some other metropolitan area in the United States today, you'd find him on the weekends bar hopping and having a big time as a young, wealthy man. As he rode his horse, he saw beggars in the 12th century on the street of Europe. He would flip a beggar a coin. That was the custom of the day. He did it because he, you know, he wanted to help these poor, pitiful people. And, and he also did it because he wanted them to know that he had what they did not have. One day as he was riding along, he saw a man who had been completely disfigured by leprosy. And as was his custom, he flipped him a little coin. He rode a little bit further. And something 
Something grabbed a hold of him. He stopped and got off of his horse and walked back to the man and handed him some more gold. And then he found himself embracing the man. It even surprised him. From that day on, the young man began to look differently at people whom society considered the least. He noticed them. He cared for them. He began to devote his life to them. Time and again, he cared for people in need. On one occasion, he helped fix and repair an old church that had fallen into disrepair. His father was completely confused by his son's activities and finally gave him an ultimatum. He said, son, I don't understand why you're hanging out with these low-class people. I want you to be in the cloth business to take care of everything for me to handle our fortune. But if you keep this up, I'll have to disinherit you. And it's said that that day the young man stripped off all of his clothes right down to the, the underclothing and said, then I guess I'm no longer your son. He said, because I have to follow my Lord. And so the man whom we call St. Francis of Assisi continued his compassionate work, taking up a life of caring for the least of God's children. It's been said that he redeemed the church of his age. When it's... And the church had become little more than a cold institution. He brought life and love back to the church in his simple, caring ways. He, he went on beyond zebra, you know? beyond the normal, beyond the parameters that were acceptable norms for the day. He pushed it on out there. Let his faith push it out. He trusted God. He passed the test of faith. You know, James writes to us in the New Testament, faith without works is dead. Faith without corresponding action is dead. Faith without the application of it loses its vitality, its efficacy. It loses its strength. Faith wanes. Faith becomes weakened if we're not practicing and applying our faith. And there are all kinds of application points. I can tell you about a couple of my life. Tithing is something like that for me. Tithing, tithing makes no sense to me legally or intellectually unless I add a spiritual dimension to it it's the only way it works for me if I just think I take ten dollars and I take one of those out of ten dollars and I sacrifice it to God which makes no sense unless I add the spiritual dimension to it which is by faith I give in obedience to God's call in my life because my faith believes that God will take what I sacrifice to him, even though it's now dead to me, I believe God will raise it up. That's where my faith is. The same thing happens for me in prayer. Now, some of you may think that I'm just, I'm a pagan. But prayer is a struggle for me. And, and, and the reason it's a struggle is because it doesn't make any intellectual sense to me to sit sit in a room, a quiet room with a Bible open before me, talking to someone I can't see when I could be talking to someone I know, like my wife, <laughs> or someone I can see, like my children or my friends, or I could be reading something else or writing a sermon, you know, actually doing something, unless I add the spiritual dimension to it and I exercise my faith. And so I believe that whatever minutes and hours that I devote to prayer, if I sacrifice that time to God, I believe God will raise it up, that God will sovereignly and supernaturally touch 
my prayers. Because he calls us to prayer and he hears our prayers and he answers our prayers. And prayer actually changes things because it ignites the presence and power of God. God will raise it up. That's operating by faith. That's passing the test of faith. And there are people who say, well, look, you're, you're just naive. You're foolish. What kind, of a, what kind of a fool would actually tithe their income in a sacrificial way to God? I mean, what are you thinking? Think what you could do with that money in some practical, what are you, that's just, that's just foolish. Okay, maybe it is naive. Maybe it is foolish, but here's what I believe. I believe that because I exercise my faith in this particular dimension, that my life could be, just saying, could be more favored and more blessed than yours. Because I believe God will raise it up. This will all come out in the wash. This will all come crystal clear someday. And I said, well. So the test of faith. How are you doing with the tests that God's given you? Last thought. Sacrificial faith. Write that word sacrificial, if you will. I'll let you in on a kingdom secret. Sacrificial faith tends to release supernatural power. Sacrificial faith tends to release supernatural power. Christians and churches that play it safe, play it cozy with God, never learn the unleashing of God's supernatural power. They never get it. They never learn it. You can pray for me. This coming Saturday, I will be uh, uh, teaching for several hours about 40 other pastors. So I have an opportunity just to lead 40 other pastors for several hours uh, on Saturday this week. And you can pray for me. One of the things that I will say, because pastors are just like everyone else, we tend to get stuck, we tend to get in a rut, we, we tend to settle down and play it safe, and we tend not to expand the borders of our faith. We tend... We, just like everyone else, we, we, we get in patterns of expectation about what God does and what God doesn't do. This is the way God works in my life, and he doesn't seem to work much more than this. And so pastors get in this mindset as well, and it affects the churches that they lead. And so this tendency to be conservative and careful and cautious and, and play it cozy and play it safe with God hinders the presence of God and the power of God released. But when we expand our faith, see, the Bible says that, that faith is what, what prompts God, what encourages God, what honors God, what blesses God, what, what gets God's attention. This is, what, this is what moves the heart of God, the faith of his people, people who trust him. Lord, I trust you, and I trust you so much, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this in obedience to you. And God goes, well, all right then, be right there. And that's the way it works. And so I want, I want you to think about the power of God that can be released in your life if you think in terms of being sacrificial in your faith. I think Abraham would have gone to heaven if he had said to God, take my son, Isaac, the son of promise, and sacrifice him on a, as a burnt offering? What are you, Nuts? not going to do that. That's crazy. Doesn't make any sense. No, not going to do it. No, you got the wrong guy for that job. I think if Abraham would have 
put his foot down and just said, no, I'm not going to do that. I think he'd have gone to heaven, you know, and things would have turned out okay for him. But listen to me. God took Abraham as a result of that to levels of resurrection faith and power that he would have never known before. And that's true in your life and mine as well, that God will take us to levels of life and ministry and empowerment and influence that few ever touch and few ever enjoy because they hesitate to obey God sacrificially by faith. So the key to moving these levels of faith is to sacrifice in faith. Verse 5b, this is an interesting little phrase. They get to the base of Mount Moriah. They see the top of the hill. These two servants are with them. Abraham says to the servants, you guys stay, stay here. And this is what it says in 5b. We will worship. Abraham implying he and Isaac. We will worship. Then we will come back to you. We will worship. Then we'll come back. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What are Abraham's intentions? His intention is to obey God by sacrificing Isaac. We will worship, then we will come back. How's that going to work? I thought Isaac's going to be the burnt offering. We will worship, then we will come back. Now, this goes back to Abraham's faith. Abraham just thought, well, I can, I can, I can kill the boy and consume him on the fire. But God's big enough, he can raise him right back up. Just raise him right back up, I'll bring him back home with me. That's where, that's where his faith was. It's, it's dramatic. And here's what we learn. Now, here's the lesson. That if you'll hear this, friends, this will change your life. If you'll hear it. Listen. The point that we learn, the, the lesson through the life of Abraham in this moment is this. I will not suffer in the long run by obeying God. I will not suffer in the long run by obeying God. Mm -mm. No. It may be sacrificial. It may be costly. It may be painful. It may be challenging and to the core of my being in the moment. But I will not suffer in the long run by obeying God. No. I will, I will be the beneficiary of an amazing work of God's grace in my life, of sustaining grace, of healing grace, of empowering grace in my life if I obey God, even though in the short run it may cost me something. I will not suffer in the long run by obeying God. Now, if you'll hear this, it will help you because many, many Christian people Followers of Jesus get knocked right off of the main course of God's plan for their lives in moments of the test when this opportunity comes up. And this is the lie. There is a lie that is perpetuated in, in humanity and has been perpetuated for 2,000 years. And it goes like this. If you do that, if you obey God and you follow him sacrificially in the way he's describing to you right now, you will never be happy again. You will never have the things that you want. You will never be content. You'll never be gratified. You'll never be happy. The world, the flesh, and the devil scream that message to the people of faith. If you step into that particular realm of faith sacrificially, it will be the end of the life you love. And it's a lie. It's a deceit. It is a horrible deception perpetrated on the people of God because just the opposite is true. 
If you will obey, if we will obey God sacrificially by faith, God will supernaturally raise that thing up and bless your life and bring you more life and more joy and more fulfillment than you've ever imagined. And there's the truth of it. Yeah, that's right. It was about 1960 when Millard Fuller made his first million dollars. Some of you know the name Millard Fuller. Began when he, he was a student at the University of Alabama. Pardon me just a second. <coughs> when you haven't talked for a few weeks, your voice gets out of shape. Sorry. He and a friend, S college students, opened a printing company and they began to print cookbooks, and one of them got traction, and they made a bunch of money, even as students. He paid his way through law school, of course, with that money, and he and his partner then moved to Montgomery, Alabama, and one day his accountant called and shared with him that he now was a multi-millionaire, lots and lots of money. For Millard Fuller, however, things were not right at home. Some of the values that he had when he was young, he had left behind. When he and his wife Linda had first met, they had made a covenant to love each other and to love God, and all of that had gotten displaced along the way. Finally, she left him. She went to New York City, called home, said that she needed some time away, some separation. He went to New York to see what was left of their marriage in an attempt to salvage their relationship. As they were together there in New York, they went to see the Broadway play, It's Never Too Late. Interesting. They came out and were going to take a taxi ride through Central Park, and when they opened the taxi door, the driver said, congratulations, this is your lucky day. You are the first ones to ride in my brand new taxi cab. And they took it as a sign, an omen. They took long walks while they were in the city, sat on the steps of a cathedral one day, talked and talked about what had gone wrong in their lives together, why things weren't the way they wanted them to be. Finally, they came to the conclusion that they had to return first to their Christian faith that had been so important to them in their earlier years. And then they chose to go beyond the Z, beyond zebra opting to explore new territory outside of their comfort zone. After a few phone calls, Millard Fuller had his accountant busy working at giving away all of his money. Gave it away. Millard gave it away to charitable institutions of one kind or another, and he and Linda moved to a Christian community in Americus, Georgia. This is 1960. From there, they became involved in fixing up homes for people living in poverty in that area. Millard Fuller took all of his brilliance and all of the acumen that he had developed over the years in business and he began to apply them to helping people have a home. In 1964, he began what is now called Habitat for Humanity, an organization that over the last five decades now has built, rehabilitated, repaired, or improved 500,000 homes in America and around the world. Simple Jesus economics is what Millard and Linda Fuller called it. Simple Jesus economics. People working together to provide a decent home for all of God's people. And 
as it happened, because Millard and Linda Fuller were willing to go on beyond the boundaries, beyond what most people considered normal and reasonable, they began to exercise sacrificial faith. And they've made a difference. Our text today, verses 6 and 7, we finally come to this moment. Little Isaac, he's probably 10 years old, 9, 10, 11, something like that. He looks up at his dad, Abraham. He looks up at him. Now, remember, this is the son of laughter. This is the boy who's the joy of their life. He's all the time laughing. He's all the time smiling. He is the joy of their lives. And you know he has big brown eyes, great big brown eyes. He's Middle Eastern. He's, he has brown eyes. And he looks up with his little, little olive-colored face and his big brown eyes. He looks up and he says, Daddy, we have the fire and we have the wood, but where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? Any dads in the room today? Can you, can you feel that? Can you feel that? This is serious, isn't it? This is very important. Would you agree? This is serious. Mm. I want to put this on the screen just to drive the thought home this morning. It goes like this. Obedience unlocks the resurrection power of God, but it is not without expense. Obedience unlocks the resurrection power of God. It always costs something. Abraham responds to his son. He said, Lord, he said, son, the Lord will provide. And in verses 12 through 14 in Genesis 22, the Lord will provide. This is where we, we find the name of Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, he will provide. The Lord provides. Jehovah Jireh, he will provide the lamb, son. He will provide the lamb. And, of course, we know how the story ends in this case. And on the way down, don't you know, Abraham wrapped his arm around Isaac and said, you know, buddy, this wasn't, I don't think, I don't think this was about us. This wasn't about us today. This is, this is about some other moment. There's going to be a, another mountain where another father takes his son by the hand and leads him up a hill. But there's not going to be a voice crying out from heaven, no, no, Stop. There's not going to be any stay of execution that day. Nobody's going to delay the inevitable. And that father is going to let his son die. When you read Genesis chapter 22, verse 14b, the last half of verse 14, the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now, wait a minute. What mountain? What shall be provided? What shall be seen? A ram caught in a thicket sacrificed in the place of a child in sin? Listen, friends, there's only one way to interpret Genesis 22:14. This is a statement of Calvary. The Scripture makes no sense without the New Testament. This is one of the verses of Scripture which is completely incomprehensible without Calvary. Some scholars believe that Mount Moriah is the actual spot of, of the crucifixion. <laughs> That this was a symbol, this was a precursor of a man taking his son, the son of promise, to the top of this mountain to sacrifice him, but God intervening and providing a substitute lamb. Only 
Years later, God would send his only son to the same mountain, only this time there would be no stay, and that son would die. Wow. On Mount Moriah, then a prophetic drama unfolds, which would be replayed and rehearsed thousands of years later. Several years ago, a group of students from various denominational backgrounds got together to discuss this question. I'm at the end, in case you're getting nervous. This is the very end. What are the minimal requirements for being a Christian? What are the minimal requirements for being a Christian? This entailed asking questions such as, what do you have to believe? Or how do you have to be baptized? Or what do you have to do? And the discussion dragged on and on through the morning until one young woman rose and headed for the door. And the convener called her back and said, excuse me, where are you going? Don't you like our discussion? And she said, well, no, not really. She said, I'm not interested in what is the least requirement to be a Christian. I came here trying to find out what's the most I can do for my Jesus. Living by faith, passing the tests of faith, and embracing sacrificial faith. You want revival? You want renewal? It's the road. That's the road to it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Would you bow your heads and pray with me just for a moment? Many of you know the words of this hymn On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross where my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Lord, I pray for us today. Every single last one of us in this room today are facing some challenge, some test of our faith. Some of us are believing for something grand and great. Others of us are faced with personal crisis, health crisis, relational crisis, financial crisis. We're facing into a great challenge, and we need bold, confident, sacrificial faith. God, increase our faith. God, touch us so that we might push out the boundaries of our faith because we serve a great God. So come, we pray today, Lord, and meet us at the point of our faith. In Jesus' name, and the people said,